Hey, and welcome to the CC Broadcast. It's kind of weird that we're already in February. Um, it means, for one, that our stores are going to get a little sunnier. Local election strategy is well underway with being developed, and you'll be hearing more about that over the next week. And Congress 2022 will start to be planned this month, so we're already halfway through that term that was set by Congress last year. As we spoke about in the last episode, CC has readjusted its portfolios. We've spent some time since then honing our individual sort of working priorities in each of our roles for the next few months. I also want to thank comrades who came to our scrutiny session at the end of January. There were some really thoughtful questions and useful discussions, so thank you to all for coming along and contributing. I do encourage you to have a look at the minutes which are attached to this announcement. Please, please do come to the next one. It will be at the end of February. We're moving to doing them once a month rather than once every two months, so please do look out for that. CC is also going to be reviewing branch and caucus strategies over the next month. The branch support team will be looking at the branch strategies in detail, and we'll also be inviting caucus secretaries to come along and present their caucus strategies to us over the next sort of couple of months. Um, this also gives us a really good opportunity to hear directly from caucus leadership about what's going on in their caucuses and what they want from us. Those are kind of the major headlines from CC this time. I'm going to be joined by Danny, one of our branch support secretaries, to talk through local campaigns in our branches. But first, I'll give way to Angel and Sean to talk about the latest news. Comrade Angel, can you tell me a little bit about this Russia-China pipeline deal that I've been reading about? So we've got this new 30-year gas deal being signed between Russia and China, right as the um, the Winter Olympics have been opened in China as well. So there's been sort of emphasis on Russia being a special guest and, and this kind of new um, emphasis that is being put on the relationship between the two countries lately. Some particularly interesting details with this pipeline is obviously not the first we're the only gas pipeline between Russia and China. There are quite a few. Uh, one of the biggest ones known as Power Siberia, which does, last year it was 16.5 billion cubic meters of gas, um, which is a large amount. The latest one is going to be another 10 billion. So another, what, two thirds on that. But it's going to be settled in euros. So as enemy of the United States as you can get, the vast majority of petrochemicals around the world are sold in dollars, priced in dollars, um, to the extent that, you know, we still talk about petrodollars where, you know, you have the, the entire currency of, of a large number of countries, say Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, countries that are major oil producers, where their currencies are referred to as petrodollars because they are completely pinned to the actual value of oil because there's almost no other significant exports. So... It's quite unusual to see gas or oil being sold in, in anything other than, but it's been a, a little more common recently. Um, there was one, I think it was last year, might have been two years ago, between Iran and China that was denominated in the Chinese currency, the renminbi. So this is it's not completely unprecedented, but it's easily the, the biggest one ever, um, although it's been done in euros as, as a sort of third currency that is neither the ruble nor the renminbi um the reason for that being if you did it in one or the other country's currency then it becomes advantageous for one of them to crash the other's economy <laughs> um which neither of them uh, wanted to sign up for whereas if it's a, a third party then it, it kind of takes that out of the picture but it also is a kind of chip to Europe to say, listen, this is increasing the stability of your, of your currency. The fact that we're denominating this deal in this amount makes this a, 
a sort of favor to the to the euro there and a another of of the sort of cuts into the hegemony of the dollar as well so that's that's interesting the other thing is that they're saying on account of this it's going to harm chinese liquid natural gas imports now china imports liquid natural gas from you know anywhere that's selling it but one of the major sellers of it is is the us and it's the same liquid natural gas exactly the same that they are trying to sell to europe as a substitute a more expensive substitute for the the gas that europe is currently not getting from russia yeah because yeah this article got me thinking because it seems like it's pretty easy to get the gas from russia but it seems like Nord Stream 2 which is being constructed in the eu just can't seem to get off the ground to the point where Sleepy Joe is now using it as a, an open bargaining chip right in front of the uh, the German Chancellor at the same time that Macron was over in Moscow meeting Putin in the Kremlin. Olaf Scholz, who's the new Chancellor, uh, was over in the White House meeting Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden stating happily again that if there is any Russian incursion into Ukraine, he will cancel Nord Stream 2. The only way that he would be able to cancel Nord Stream 2 as if he was to like send in people to physically lift it up and take it away from Germany and from the EU. The pipes are there. It's pretty far along in construction, unless he's planning on like carpet bombing it. I don't know how he's planning exactly on stopping it. Notably, when Biden was being very open about how much he would not like Nord Stream 2 to go ahead, the German minister did not disagree, but definitely noticeably did not agree. Germany does not share that opinion, which it seems to have kind of ping-ponged a little bit back and forth. He would absolutely not pledge uh, that Nord Stream 2 would be closed in any way, as it is quite important to the Germans. So we've got the geopolitical consequences of this gas stuff. We've got the um, the warmongering in Ukraine, Putin hawking the liquid natural gas, these other pipelines. But what are what are kind of the the domestic consequences? We've seen you know gas prices skyrocketing in in Europe. There was some announcements today, Sean, about a supposed support bill. Yeah, gas prices are skyrocketing here as well. It's not particularly good. As soon as you start to remember that gas is a commodity and not something just for geopolitics, it all becomes a little bit more close to home. So Ofgen is raising the energy bill cap, which is bad, obviously. It means that your your household bills, your gas, is going to become more expensive. There has been a response from the Conservative government, uh, specifically from Rishi Sunak, who is Chancellor he is definitely not riding the same high as he did with Eat Out to Help Out. This is noticeably much more flaccid and uh, all-round embarrassing. So a couple of steps involved in this quote-unquote support bill. There is going to be a £200 rebate, uh, which is going to be given in October. Unfortunately, uh, that rebate is going to be paid back to the government over a five-year period uh, in installments of £40. It's car enough for your utilities, except you don't really get a choice in it. You don't really get to say, actually, no, I don't want that. You're just getting it, and then you're going to owe the government money. There'll also be a, a one-time council tax rebate. Uh, going back uh, to people as well that you that thankfully you won't have to pay back, but it will be less. That's happening in uh, that's happening in April. It's all adding up to about three hundred and fifty pounds of support 
uh, reflecting on about a, a nearly seven hundred pounds um, price cap increase. It's a four hundred dent then without like like with the help included, except you're also having to pay the two hundred back over the next five years, regardless of what happens to prices whether they go up or down. It is absolutely powerful. It's it is not going to fix anything. Uh, in fact, the, the the structure of the repayment means that uh, in the future, when your gas bills increase in about two years' time, and you haven't had any money back that year, you still need to cough up the extra forty pounds to pay back for the the two hundred pound rebate. It is not going to help. I think that, that there does need to be uh, both from us and from every every other organization every other trade unions the trade unions have, have already leading the way uh, on this uh, there needs to be resistance to these price of living increases because they are no longer climbing steadily with inflation now the price of uh, the price of living increases are bouncing ahead of us and this will just continue to get worse returning to the olympics alongside the the new pipeline being announced we've got um a nice little meeting between argentinian president alberto fernandez and president of china xi jinping regarding some wayward islands las malvinas in the Atlantic Ocean. You don't know them as uh, the Falkland Islands, unfortunately. Uh, you may have had a, a weird uncle who was involved in the conflict. Tiny little set of islands for anyone who isn't aware, off the coast of Argentina, very, very, very far away. Uh, they do still belong to us. Margaret Thatcher made very sure of that. However, at the recent meeting, um, there was two two commitments made, one going from China to Argentina, one going from Argentina to China. Fernandez from Argentina does back the one China policy, and uh, China has gone forward and now recognised Argentina's claims to the Falkland Islands, um, which is probably been the scariest thing that the British government has experienced in quite some time, sad to say, but it has sent um, Liz Truss uh, absolutely into uh, a fit about it. Uh, they are not happy. She said, uh, China must respect the Falkland sovereignty, which is uh, just, I mean, the same kind of incredibly rich thing we were hearing about Hong Kong and so forth, you know, a couple of years back when that was the um, the big ticket item, but just like the, the absolute goal of it kind of beggars belief, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. Now I'm joined by Danny to talk about one of North London's campaign focuses and how we do theory in organising work. Hey, Danny, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I've just come out of a meeting with the Seven Sisters Market campaign um, so yeah, I'm doing good and ready to, to talk about it. We're here today just to chat through sort of generally what that campaign is about. And it's good to to share that knowledge, to share what's going on in our different branches. Um, but also increasingly in the party, we've been talking about how we make theory into something concrete, about democratising theory, bringing it into a branch level rather than sort of boxing it as... Um, you know, studying texts and so on, which is still nonetheless important, but recognising that class analysis, understanding the local conditions we're organising in, um, understanding the campaigns that we're organising in, um, is itself theory, is itself theoretical work um, that we need to, to be doing and be engaging with and be understanding in educational terms. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all read um, like things like about dialectical materialism. I'm sure we've all read 
you know, state and revolution before and things like that. But yeah, again, it's, you know, it's about how do we actually apply that in practice and yeah, how do we actually look at the the communities that we're organising in through this sort of Marxist lens, I guess. Do you want me to give some background on the, the Seven Sisters Market campaign? Yeah, I guess like just, you know, what what has been sort of going on with the campaign. So we got involved with the Seven Sisters Market campaign, also known as the Save Latin Village campaign, I think over kind of a year ago now even um it's been quite a long time the idea is pretty is pretty simple um at face value but once you get into it there's a lot of complexities but um at face value um there's a market in seven sisters where we do our stool and we actually had our stool in front of the market um for many months before we quite realized the context that was happening directly behind us it was a market predominantly uh with south american traders and that's why it was um sort of politicized as the latin village as the campaign went on and the campaigns existed um, for about, I think it's 16 to 18 years now. So for some time, largely it's an anti-gentrification campaign. Um, so in, in recent years, there's been an effort to get rid of that market to knock it down and to build flats over it. Meanwhile, the community has fought back. It's been an important site for um, the community and particularly those sections of the diaspora to to organize, to meet, to have community in, um, to trade and so on, as well as, you know, just a point of, of significance in the community. And it's a, a relatively well-known spot, not just in Seven Sisters, but in kind of North London more generally. So over the last kind of couple of years in particular, when we've been more involved, there's been a developer called Granger um, who tried to sort of buy it up and they were quite far down that process to turn it into to flats. Um, that was sort of successfully resisted uh, with August last year. Granger pulled out of that. And so now there is sort of a fight for what's called the community plan, which is a bunch of different organisations. I won't bore you with all the names of them. Uh, but a bunch of different organisations that are teaming up to say this is what the community wants, which is effectively to restore the building, which has been closed for um, a couple of years now, left you know neglected, um, to reopen it as a market, but also to introduce things like community spaces and, and resource hubs and so on, and um, utilising it for the community more generally. So not just to restore it, but to improve it um, for the needs of the community. Yeah, that's the the rough the rough summary, I think. Are there any other kind of stakeholders in the community that you could possibly identify? I mean, it's it's a really interesting one, right? Like, so a lot of emphasis historically and in, and indeed presently has been on the traders. Um, and we came in initially with quite a sort of scepticism about that. Um, you know, kind of viewing the traders as potentially kind of petty bourgeois. With some more investigation, what we've actually got is a really interesting class dynamic amongst the traders themselves, uh, where they are. Um, often refugees who have come to, to trade in that market because there's nowhere else where they can trade. There is a great deal of precarity within that group of traders. Some of them are, you know, definitely petty bourgeois, you know, have a level of employees and so on. So that there is certainly that that dynamic within the market as well. But then you do have, you know, one person who rolls up and sells some handmade crafts and so on. And it's it's a very different dynamic just within the traders. More generally speaking, as to the, the class dynamics, part of the, the tension I think that is worth identifying is around sort of whether this is um, a Latin American space or whether this is a Tottenham space or whether it's both of those things or more than those things. For example, one of the things that us and some of our key allies within the wider coalition around this is, are advocating for is really making sure that like black and brown people are, are represented and included in the, the 
power dynamics and in the, the development of the community plan and so on. Um, the campaign has done a good job at engaging the Latin American community, um, but it hasn't done a good job at all in engaging, for example, the predominantly black community that is Tottenham. Our goal really is to utilize this campaign to connect the community into what is happening in that campaign. Um, and by doing so, also strengthen our own relationship with the community itself. If we can be sort of a channeling force to take the wider Tottenham community and engage them with that very concrete campaign, it serves the campaign, it serves the political movement that we're trying to build more generally too. Yeah, definitely. And I think like you've almost drawn on this idea of like what the Communist Party is meant to be. Almost like an umbrella under which you can have, you know, these different working class struggles essentially come under. No, I I think totally. I think you're totally right. And like that's also like partly why we're doing things like the Bartham campaign, right? Like it it's a way to tie in wider local issues and say well actually the neglect of this specific market site it's connected to the neglect of the like immediate community where there isn't a public bathroom we're just connected to a wider problem around harrogate it's joining these dots which is politically what we want to be doing but you're absolutely right that it's also part of the way that we build the sort of communist party tm insofar as like that wider sense of this this gathering of, of you know proletarian working oppressed forces yeah, so what would you say then, like, are the sort of contradictions, primary and or secondary, like, in this campaign? I would definitely point out the one that I already have, which is between sort of, um, within the traders, there's that contradiction between the sort of different relationship to the, the work that's been done within that site, within the campaign itself, and within the, the coalition of organisations, um, that contradiction between sort of um, emphasis on the traders and making it a space where the market can function and there's sort of business development that's been mentioned a few times versus the sort of demands of working oppressed people something that we've articulated is okay it's all well and good talking about the community but we talk often with the people who are right outside of the market every single day they're the people who are regulars to our stores often are predominantly polish and like how do we engage with those and what does that mean for the quote-unquote latin village because they've got direct investment in that space you know they are there more than anyone else like any day of the week you can walk up and find those regulars there how do we make sure that they've got as much of a stake especially the ones who for example sleep outside how do we make sure that they're involved in the generation and implementation of a community plan that i'd say is is the primary contradiction for the coalition itself and that's that's what we're in the long term working to address at the same time, we've also got, to, I think we were talking about like the primary contradiction of this struggle. Um, it's got to be between like, you know, the, the forces of gentrification versus the community like that. That's fundamentally what's at play. And while recognising the nuances of sort of, you know, where there are things that could be better and could be worse about the campaign itself. It's also important to constantly remember the wider picture of what we're fighting for, which is um, to combat gentrification in, in the neighbourhood. I remember speaking to uh, Chima once and they were talking about when there were the there was like the attempt at eviction and they said that there were uh, essentially what you might call mercenaries turned up to try and evict the uh, the traders. I guess then, yeah, so what would you say is the role of the state in this campaign? So absolutely, like, there is the role of, like, the police and, and other sort of agencies in um, enacting the more violent sides and the more visceral sides um, of gentrification as seen in, in eviction. 
um, and its subsequent resistance. Um, I think it's important to note that that was, and it continues to be successfully resisted, um, and that's something to be to be celebrated. I think another interesting dynamic is uh, the fact that the landlord is TfL. You know, that is that is an arm of the state. That is a local um, governmental body, and yet they they are acting as the landlord and, and even are coming up into, especially recently since the council endorsed the community plan, um, they are coming up against one another in quite an interesting and weird way where you've got TFL on one side, council half-heartedly on the other side, you've got the GLA, you've got the mayor, that like, you know, Sadiq Khan kind of in the middle of those two forces. Well, it's, it's really messy um, and all of it is working to even, you know, where we do have the council that is on the more, I guess, progressive side of this issue, um, there's still forces within that that are counteracting it. There are, it's a vast majority Labour council, um, and there are a number of Labour councillors who are increasingly opposing the community plan, even those who historically were the minority voice who were in favour of it, have now since switched and are opposing it uh, because they sense that there is more political opportunity in that. Um, and indeed, in, in the meeting, I was just that, you know, and the, the points were made um, before that, which is from people who are in the Labour Party who are involved with the campaign saying, look, this is being utilised solely for the purpose of political leverage within the Labour Party. Um, and you see that being played out within the context of the council, like you've got a couple of councillors who want to have a go at, um, at running for MP sooner rather than later using this as an issue and yet like that is being given the formality of the council when it's just some petty Labour Party squabbling at the end of the day. It's kind of fascinating to watch in real time how the sort of Labour Party local government bodies in different forms and in different ways all fundamentally as a whole serve to stop those those work and oppress demands that that are being advocated for in in this way um, in the form of the community plan. You've kind of already touched on this question just there, but because obviously we know that at the end of the day, when we're talking about primary contradictions and things like that, the the ultimate primary contradiction is imperialist racial capitalism. But, you know, it's not really enough to say to people, you know, if, if you're speaking to someone on the stall or you're speaking to someone in a campaign and someone says that there is something that they're unhappy about, it's not enough to just say we need to get rid of capitalism. You know, the point is that you've got to, you know, really draw at those threads to to get to that point. And that's what it boils down to, right? Like, I think sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees. And it is important to remember what we're actually trying to do here. North London Branch wants to be kind of the go-to organisation in North London for when, like, there's an issue of gentrification. You know, someone's getting gentrified, red fight bats called up. That That's where we want to be. That's our ambition. And that, I think has a kind of quite a natural revolutionary slant to it. In terms of getting to that point, you know, it's about winning this campaign, making sure that we're connecting with that community and bringing that community on board. Tottenham is constantly being gentrified from all sorts of angles. And so working out, okay, it's not just about like this campaign is kind of the centerpiece right now, but there are so many other little pockets of gentrification and of resistance and struggle that um, we want to get involved with in Tottenham, in Harrogate, in North London more generally. You know, eventually looking to not just work alongside other groups in pre-existing campaigns, but maybe beginning to launch our own ones as well. When gentrification is happening, identifying that, being ahead of the curve um, and taking the fight to them from Red Fight back, you know, taking the initiative ourselves. And yeah, eventually building towards that sense of if you've got a problem with gentrification, you turn to North London Fudge. That's ultimately the aim here. This might be a bit too much of a pivot, but like I want to just 
I was thinking then just trying to get into that last bit where it's like, you know, well, yeah, in terms of our practical experience, you know, we, we are still babies, essentially. We've not really done enough to be able to draw any kind of um, concrete conclusions or anything like that. But at the end of the day, it is also a good point that, you know, we need to be uh, actually making sure that we are recording the things that we are doing and actually learning from the things that we are doing and that it's actually getting uh, noted down somewhere because at the end of the day, like, you know, there might always be a case where somebody else would need to pick up our work. Where, where do you think we go from there in terms of learning from that practical experience? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I don't think the answer can come from any one person. Um, I think there, there's multiple facets to this, right? Like there's, for example, uh, making sure that charts and maps and, and the sort of data and analytical side of stuff is kept up to date. Um, I think sometimes we can be tempted to, right, let's go do some research into something, then we consider it done. But working out how we do research on a continual basis, like that's part of the reason why we do stores on a weekly basis, you know, that there's utility in doing something consistently and seeing the motion of things and how how people's responses change whether that's in cold hard data whether that's in the feelings and sentiments of people we're talking to on our stool but making sure that we are consistently there and um recording how that changes um i think is really important the way we record it as well is 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 really vital and i think sometimes like there's certainly a space for for formal kind of recording you know having reports having logs i also think there's a space for like far more sort of uh, warmer forms of recording um for example like arguably what we're doing right now is a form of like documentation of like what the party is doing in north london with regards to this campaign you know and the world's a oyster in that like the various posters that we've made um count as a form of documentation tell us about you know what what the kind of messaging that we were using at that certain point is like, you know, making sure that once this campaign is won, and as you said, we're, we're babies, like this campaign is still not won yet, and it's going to be the first of many campaigns that we're going to win. But making sure that once we are at a point where we can look back and reflect on it, to go through the various tactics that we use and say, well, this stunt worked really well, this stunt got us nowhere, but this demo did that, and so on, and, and doing that analytical work from a vantage point of success or, or indeed of failure, of course. But we are obviously in, in such an early stage that we can kind of, I think, potentially run the risk of criticising what we're doing before we've seen whether it's fruitful or not. Um, and so we've got to, in the sort of spirit of democratic centralism, we've got to go wholeheartedly into what we're trying to implement now and either prove its success or prove its failure. But we do that rigorously. and We do that um, by by going all in. I think that the point that you make about, yeah, we've just sat here, we've done a local analysis of, of a community in North London. We've, you know, we've looked at the role of the state and we've, yeah, we've made sure that it's recorded somewhere that people can go back and they can listen to this and, you know, take notes from this and things like that. And they could perhaps use this in their own organising context as well. So, yeah, like it, it's important to, to remember that theory is something that's quite fluid and you know the the relationship between theory and practice is a fluid one right and and one thing i'd say like and and always the the mode of education either facilitates this or hinders this and i think something like this recording it's me and you and there's a whole bunch of other people in north london branch 
Um, and some of them might be like, she's got this absolutely wrong, this awfully, they've missed something. And great, like, and that's a part of education as well, right, is to bring more into the fold. You know, sometimes we've got to hone things down and make them simple and, and understandable, but also sometimes we've got to expand outwards and, and bring in more nuance and more aspects. And it's certainly like you can't summarise a community in 15 minutes or whatever. Yeah, thank you very much for um, for answering the questions that I've put to you. Yeah, And you've been an engaging theoretical partner as well. So thank you very much. Thank you so much as well, comrades. You are a star as always. Um, and I'm excited to have you come on um, and do the same, but with, with Liverpool Branch sometime soon. Definitely. Looking forward to it. Before we go, I'd like to flag that the party has put out an open letter opposing the leaked news that the Equality and Human Rights Commission will be recommending what is effectively a trans bathroom ban. Please do sign it yourself as an individual, and in particular, please reach out to organisations that you or your branch know to sign it to, and of course, especially trans-led groups. We want this to be the first stage in creating a groundswell of opposition to this really concerning news. And with that, thank you for listening to this Central Committee broadcast. We'll see you next time.